Namaste. I'm Reverend Wendy Craig Purcell here at the Unity Center in beautiful San Diego. Thank you so much for subscribing to this channel. Please make sure that you like the video you've just watched and consider making a contribution on our app or on our website. It's really easy to do. And thank you in advance for that support. It does make a difference. And the first invitation, he says, is the invitation, don't wait. Don't wait. Let's just say that together. Don't wait. Don't wait. Frank is the co-founder of the Zen Hospice Project in San Francisco, and he has done work with literally thousands of folks facing death through that work. And just in sitting and learning from them and listening to them, he has written this book, these invitations to us, those of us wanting to live a fuller, more meaningful, more purposeful, more joyful life. Five invitations. When you think about when you get an invitation to a party or an invitation to an event, it is an invitation to engage with something, right? to participate, to, to not just sit on the sidelines, but actually to get in there and be part of what is, is happening. And it is with that intention that he suggests that we look at these five invitations, that it's not just about a theory, it's about stepping into our lives in this sort of way and becoming fully engaged. The first invitation, as I've said, is the invitation, don't wait. This is a statement he writes in this chapter. For many, authentic life starts at the time of death, not our own death, but someone else's. Let me repeat that and think about that for a moment. For many, <clears throat> authentic life starts at the time of death, not our own death, but someone else's death. What happens, think about it, if you've ever been to a memorial service or a wake or a funeral or a celebration of life, no matter what the religion, even perhaps no matter how close you were to the person who passed, I bet you that while you were there, you came into thinking about your own mortality, your own, what if this is my last song? How am I living my life now? It is when we begin to ask those deeper questions that I think we begin to open up to a much bigger dimension of life itself. It is when we face a reality that, at least in this physical form, there's going to be a time when we, as we know ourselves in this physical form, no longer exist. And when we contemplate that with any sort of depth, with any sort of real reflection, we begin to look more deeply at how we're living our life right now. How are we in the relationships we have? Are there relationships that need to be repaired? Are we telling the people that we care about, hey, I love you, I'm here for you, are we showing up? the way we really want to show up? Or are we just kind of going through the day-to-day -day existence, handling all of our responsibilities, checking things off of our to-do list, but not really asking those deeper questions? 
but it's when we are reminded that this physical form comes to an end that we look at things differently. Frank suggests that there are three concepts that help us to accept the invitation not to wait. And those three concepts, I'll tell you what they are, and then we'll explore them a little uh, with a little bit of depth. He says the first one is understand the understanding of and the reliance on the teaching of impermanence. The second is understanding and developing a mature hope. And the third is a commitment to the practice of forgiveness. So it is impermanence, it is mature hope, and it is the practicing of forgiveness. So looking at impermanence. Impermanence reminds us that everything changes, right? Everything. Doesn't ask us if we like the fact that it's changing, but impermanence reminds us of the truth the reality that everything changes. Where is your childhood? It's not here right now, right? It's impermanent. It's gone. Where is the delicious meal you had last night? Where is the vacation that you last took? They're in you as a memory, but that's the only place they exist, as a memory. Impermanence, everything, everything changes. And we in this culture and this society, and I think this day and age, tend to really hold on. We tend to have, I think, real challenge with accepting this fundamental truth that everything changes, that everything is in a state of change, everything is impermanent. Frank tells a story of a practice he often has with preschool children. He'll take them out for a walk, and the assignment as they're out walking together is to look for dead things, to like leaves, like leaves that have fallen from trees or, or broken branches. And so the kids, because they're not afraid of this idea of, of death, are looking and, and they collect them for show and tell. You know, afterwards he's going to gather them and have them tell him about the things that they found. And some of the things are like old rusty nails that weren't necessarily alive, but you get the idea that that they're seeing things that aren't in their pristine state, you know, a fallen leaf or a broken branch or, or maybe even the bones of a tiny little animal or something. And he has them bring them back and he puts a, a tarp out and they put all their items out and they talk to him about what they are and, and maybe where they had been before. And he remembers one little girl who had collected fallen leaves and talked about the death of these fallen leaves. But she said, I think the leaves that fall from trees are very kind. They make room for little ones to grow. It would be sad if trees couldn't grow new leaves. You know, out of the mouths of children, right? But that speaks to the idea of impermanence, of impermanence. There was a concept in this chapter that that really struck me, and, and I'm not brand new to the idea of impermanence or this teaching, but the way he phrased this 
really grabbed my attention. He wrote, we rely on impermanence. Think about that for a moment. We rely on impermanence. We rely on the fact that the cold we had won't last forever. We rely on the fact that that boring meeting we're sitting in will come to an end. We rely on the fact that the storm's going to eventually... We're relying on the fact that we are eventually not going to be wearing masks. Are we not? Can I have an amen to that? Right. We're relying on impermanence. Without impermanence, we couldn't grow or change. The simplicity of that idea just, after all these years of doing some pretty deep and consistent spiritual study and practice, just really grabbed my attention. The idea, I do rely on impermanence. Now the challenge is, I rely and I'm comfortable with impermanence when it's something I don't want in my life anyway. But all honesty, as a human being, the struggle is, but the things I really like, I want to keep forever. Anybody else feel that way? And yet, what, what do we actually know to be true? Even if we don't like it, what do we actually know to be true? What we know to be true is nothing stays the same forever. Nothing lasts forever. And when we can get more comfortable with that, we can ease into living our life with, with greater ease, actually. We're not pushing or forcing or grasping or avoiding. We're much more able to be with, which is another way of saying, don't wait. He suggests that creation and destruction, dissolving and becoming, are two sides of the same coin. Creation and destruction, dissolving and becoming, are two sides of the same coin. He relates a story that happened in 1991 in San Francisco. His Holiness the Dalai Lama was in town to do a presentation. I happened to be there at the same time, and as I was reading that part in the chapter, I thought, oh my gosh, I know the story he's writing about. In recognition of the Dalai Lama's visit, there were Tibetan Buddhist monks who were creating an absolutely exquisite sand mandala for His Holiness. And this mandala must have been 7, 10, 12 feet in, in, across. If you've ever seen these, they are an incredible work of art. They are made with many, 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 many different colors of very fine sand that are filled. The sand comes in individual tubes that are like, that have a funnel at the end. And the monks take these tubes, much like an artist would take paint, to create the intricate mandala. Hours. And I remember being able to watch the evolution of some of this. Absolutely exquisite. But what he writes about is what happened is that the monks had finished this beautiful work of art. And the monks, of course, are trained. They completely understand this idea of impermanence. And there was a visitor who went a little crazy, 
maybe a whole lot crazy, and she ran through the mandala, completely destroying it, because it's only made of sand resting on the floor. There was a lot of commotion, and the security was called, and the police were called, and they were going to arrest her. And the monks said, no, no. We don't feel any negativity. We don't know how to judge her motivations. We pray for her with love and compassion because they understood that the mandala itself was a teaching of impermanence because typically when these mandalas are finished, they are often blown away and scattered in the dust. So for them, there was no holding on to it and they offered to start all over again and create another one. Now, I don't know where you are in your spiritual development. If you would be right there with them, or you might have to, I'd have to stretch a bit to, to meet them there. But nonetheless, I understand, and I bet you do too, the depth of the wisdom that they're pointing to, that if we could hold our lives a little more gently, if we could understand this concept of a per impermanence a little more deeply, we would probably find ourselves struggling so much less with life and so much less with each other. He writes, it's funny, we all pretty much agree that life is in constant flux, yet we prefer to cling to the illusion that we ourselves are solid things moving through a changing world. Everything is, a ch is changing except me, we tell ourselves, but we're mistaken. We're not only the small, solid selves we have taken ourselves to be, we are in flux. We are made up of dancing elements. We are like everything else at once here and disappearing. Attention to impermanence, constants, the constancy of change, is that we learn to be more relaxed with what is now. Doesn't that sound like a delicious promise? That we learn to be more relaxed with what is now. Daniel, I think of all the songs on your water album, which to me are, are, have a very much of a Zen kind of feel to them. And yet we live in this both end, right? We, we long to, we want to embrace these deeper teachings, these ways of being. And our life is a laboratory in which we get to practice that because we still, most of us anyway, think, struggle with the human element. And so these teachings help us to break through some of that struggle, I believe. The second idea that he says helps us to move into this energy of don't wait is understanding and developing a mature hope. Understanding and developing a mature hope. He tells of an experience that just touched my heart. He says he spends a lot of time in hospitals, as you might imagine. And he was in one hospital making rounds and, I guess, visiting people. And no matter where he was, he was hearing the sounds of Brahms' lullaby coming through the speakers from time to time. And so he inquired about it. And he was told that that piece is played in every single part of the hospital, including like the security areas and the janitor's areas and the operating rooms, it's played everywhere throughout the hospital, Brahms lullaby, whenever a baby is born. 
And he said whenever he would be in that hospital and Brahms the lullaby would come on, he might be walking through the hallway and he would see, you know, whoever's pushing a cart or patient would just break out into a smile. Why? It's pretty obvious, right? I mean, it's, I think it's the good part of human nature. We have a softness, a tenderness when we think of new life. When we th- which is why it's inconceivable to me that we could ever think that this precious infant we hold in our hands is born in original sin. It is a ridiculous concept. But that was last week or last month. I won't go into that again. But there's this naturalness, right? Even if we're not a biological parent ourselves, I think there's just something tender that we connect with when we see newborn life. And he says, this is like this idea of mature hope, of mature hope, that in no matter what is going on, that there is the element of new birth, new possibility that can emerge. He says, hope takes us beyond the rational. At times, this can be invaluable to our survival. Yet at other times, when hope is misunderstood, it can plunge us into delusion and become a hindrance to facing the facts of life. To discern the real value of hope, we must draw a line between hope and expectation. Hope is an optimizing force that moves us and all of life toward harmony. It doesn't arrive from the outside, rather it is an abiding state of being, a hidden wellspring within us. When the mind is still and awake, we can see more clearly and recognize it as a living, dynamic process. Yet our usual kind of hope is little more than wishful thinking. Ordinary hope, disguised as expectation, is fixated on a specific outcome. It becomes object-focused. It takes us outside of ourselves. The quandary is that when the outcome isn't achieved, then our hopes are dashed. Mature hope is a hope that takes us inside ourselves toward finding the good in the experience. Hope is in the potential for our awakened response, not in things turning out a particular way. It's the element of what Brahms' lullaby does to people in that hospital. It reminds them no matter what else that they may be dealing with, whether it's the mundane that they're dealing with in their life because they're doing their their work as somebody in the hospital, or it's a patient that's hearing the sounds of Brahms' lullaby, it's a reminder that there is more to life than this particular experience we're going through, that everything is in flux, everything changes. We don't want to miss this opportunity right here being preoccupied with the next. And then the third element, he says, that is helpful to us in embracing this idea of don't wait is a commitment to the practice of forgiveness. And that's a big one, isn't it? A commitment to the practice of forgiveness the constancy of the practice. There are those 
times and events and situations in our lives that require, I think, a very specific and deliberate forgiveness. And those are probably the ones that come to our mind when we hear somebody speak of the importance of forgiveness in our life. We could think of something that somebody did to us or did to a loved one, and we think about you know, where am I in my forgiveness process with that? Have I even gotten to the place where I want to want to forgive? Or am I well through the forgiveness of that act, the forgiveness of that person? And that's certainly an important aspect of forgiveness. What is also being suggested is the constancy of forgiveness, the ongoing things that happen in our ordinary days that we can feel irritated and annoyed by? And can we practice this embracing? Can we practice a forgiveness of of that? Can we become less prickly? Can we become more like, these are my words now, more like Teflon, where we are able to let things slide off more? Martin Luther King Jr. said, forgiveness is not an occasional act. It is a constant attitude. And I think we need to remember that in the context of when he spoke and when he taught in the middle of the civil rights movement, right? Forgiveness is not an occasional act. It is a constant attitude. Forgiveness breaks loose any of the calcification around our heart, any of the hardness of our heart. When we make a commitment to do the very best that we can in practicing forgiveness for our, toward ourselves and toward others, it begins a process of our own healing. And in that healing, right on the heels of that, comes an opening to a greater inflow and outflow of love. As we step into a greater willingness to take on forgiveness as a practice, not just a one-time toward one person or one event, but as we take it on more as a constant way of moving through our lives, it's important to realize a few things. It's important to realize that we can forgive without ever getting an apology or amends from the other person. Apology or amends sure feels good, doesn't it? But if we wait to practice moving into forgiveness until we get an apology or until we get amends, we will still be held hostage to that person, to that event, or to that past. Forgiveness isn't about letting another person off the hook. It's not about condoning a wrong that was done. It is about releasing ourselves from the grips of the pain of whatever it was that was done. He says, we don't need to forget what happened. We don't need to condone it. We don't need reconciliation. We don't even need to welcome the person back into our lives. It's something that we practice inside here. It's not an intellectual process. And so circling back to the invitation, the invitation being don't wait. Think back to the beginning of my talk. Think back to the point that that Frank made, the point that most of us don't really think about these things until we experience death, not our own, 
but the death of another. Until we're sitting in a place or we're hearing about somebody we knew that passed, then we go into these deeper, more reflective states. And what's so important for us when we do that is to look with fresh eyes at the very life we're living right now. What is being asked of us? Where do we need to step up? What needs our loving care and attention? Is there some forgiveness work that we need to do? Is there someone that we have been meaning to reach out to and we haven't? Can we do that now? To live with this energy of don't wait, don't put off the important until tomorrow. Be willing to step into it now. Namaste. 